Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jason Lavach. Jason is a STEM educator and administrator who serves as the principal at the Technology Center of DuPage, TCD, an area career center in the west suburbs of Chicago. TCD partners with 31 schools to provide high school juniors and seniors opportunities to target their learning along focused career pathways. The International Technology and Engineering Education Educators Association recently named Jason one of their leaders to watch. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Please spend a few minutes just giving us a little bit more background on you and what your organization is all about. Okay, so I'm the principal of an area career center um, called Technology Center DuPage. I'll refer to it as TCD constantly because that's what uh, everybody seems to know us by. Um, And what we do is we are a career and technical center that is there to support the local schools in helping kids with career pathways that aren't uh, programs that aren't offered in their schools. So we have programs like EMT and fire science. Um, The kickoff program for a nursing program is um, the nursing assistant program. So we have a certified nursing assistant program. Um, we've got programs in welding and automotive body and uh, auto tech and, and a number of other programs like that. Law enforcement or criminal justice is another one of our big ones. Um, our most popular program is actually cosmetology. So we have about oh. 170 students that come to us from all these schools. And uh, they, if they make all, through all their programs and get the required hours, they actually earn the state license through the, uh, the state of Illinois and uh, can leave high school with that credential and they're ready to work. Um, so we, we've got a lot of that going on. Uh, be, besides that, um, I came to the Career Center this year. It's my first time uh, year there. And I had been um, a administrator in two previous districts running the career and technical programs there. And one of them, um, I was also what's known within the state as an education for employment director. So I was in charge of a number of different state and federal reports that had to go in. And I work with my current boss on that type of uh, work also that goes ties in with our federal funding and the funding that we get from the state uh, to make these programs necessary. So like when you're dealing with schools that have programs that um, are oriented in business, education, family, consumer sciences, uh, and, uh, industrial technology or technology education, whatever the school or the, the area calls it, uh, in agriculture is the other big one. Um, those programs get some funding from the feds and the state uh, so that we can get the pieces of equipment that we need that make the education that goes on relevant to and current to current standards as far as the types of equipment that they're using and uh, the, the programs and software that they're using. I had spent a number of years prior to becoming an administrator teaching kids technology and engineering education. So I'm teaching kids some of the more complicated softwares um, that are out there with uh, AutoCAD and Autodesk Inventor and um, other types of programming software as far as uh, CNC programming and working on that aspect of the manufacturing world. Or the other side of what I used to teach a lot would have been um, carpentry and, and cabinet making and working on the design aspect of those. Uh, and then occasionally I dabbled into the graphic arts world. So you're talking about design aspects and working with programs within the Adobe Creative Suite. And I did anything there from uh, print design to um, 
audio and video production. So mm. um, that it's it's an interesting world as far as that goes. But there is a number of different ways that we could fund it, and a lot of types of uh, reports and data that we have to present to the, the government so that we can maintain that type of funding and, and things like that. And it's also good for the, the students that way, so that everything is current, relevant to the uh, current labor force demand. I see. So so the students that you have that come to your school, they come for they so they're at other high schools uh, most of the time and they come to your high school is it on a daily basis or a couple times a week or how does that work and and you know, are they physically on site whenever they're doing studies? They are physically on site with us for either a morning session or afternoon session. So they're taking two to three periods off at their own school to come uh, from their elective programs to come to TCD for uh, the electives that they're choosing to take with us. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're there within that court, that, that classroom and that program for in about 90 minutes to, to maybe two hours, depending on what school they're from and what their, their journey is as far as their bus ride to get to us. Right. So there's, there's a bus service that brings the kids to you. Is that, Part of yes, it. the the schools the schools all get uh, you know they have to to provide the bus and the transportation to the students. There's a handful that um, will drive themselves for various reasons. They may have um, an internship that they go to for a certain portion of the time, or like we actually have a handful of kids that live within half a mile from us, so oh. it just doesn't make much sense for them to drive go all the way to their school and then come back. And, and, and there's a lot of different problematic issues. There's other school districts that refuse to um, let them drive at all, which mm-hmm. is fine. Uh, totally get it from a liability standpoint and everything else that way. But um, so they're with us for, for 90 minutes to two, two hours a day. And they're getting in-depth instruction from teachers who um, aren't necessarily traditionally trained teachers. They are um, people who it's their, they've come out of their field to be teachers. So mm-hmm. um, we, every, the EMT, instructors that we have both of them serve on the fire department that our communities in and they're both um, lieutenants within there so they're in leadership positions and they're they're that connected to the the emt world and and um it's similar to that in all of our programs we've got nurses that literally just came out of a hospital and started teaching this year within our program um we all the the cosmetology teachers have some of them even still run their own um practice or practice program out of their house or um, work in a um, a uh, hair studio or something mm-hmm. like that um, as extra work or anything like that. And then we, you know, both of our law enforcement instructors uh, are retired police officers and, um, you know, like the, the, our construction and our HVAC instructors, they, they both have worked in those fields for years. And so that's the story of all of the instructors within uh, the TCD realm and uh it's a different type of experience for kids that way one they're in there for a significantly longer period of time and two that their instructors are um experts within the field that they they are learning or teaching to those students yeah i mean it seems like that's a a very unique educational experience for kids in high school like that's something that you would expect at a graduate or or, you know postgraduate type of level in in college and whatnot of actually hearing from people that are actively working in those professions uh as well so how do you guys find students for your program like how is this marketed um as a an elective within the high schools and then you pass grades back to the other schools. How does that work in, in actually getting students for your programs? It's, it's like that, essentially. So we, uh, 
there's 31 schools that are sending out students right now, but we directly have 14 districts that we work with um, that are called the DuPage Area Occupational um, Occupational Education Service. And, and mm -hmm. the, the, those districts each send a representative to be on our board of directors. Um, and, and so each one of the, they're like our district. And so we, we work with them and their counselors to make sure that the career programs at their schools uh, are meeting the, the standards that the feds and the state have given us. And then we provide the extra educational opportunities for students in programs that just aren't, you know, you're not going to have programs that are like we have or many of those programs at those schools because it's just not realistic to have uh, them there based on enrollment and things like that. Uh, enrollment drives so much different things at a high school, a, a normal high school, as far as what programs can happen and, and things like that. And so we have enough to run a thousand kids through our school a day, um, but that's because so many different schools send them. They're sending us two or three kids per program, some maybe a little bit more, um, but you know, they can't provide that type of programming at their school because it's just not fiscally responsible or uh, for a myriad of different reasons as far as um, instruction and the equipment. Yeah, and I mean, so, it sounds like a lot of the programs that you offer are not small endeavors. Like to have, you know, the kinds of equipment and software and staff that you need to do these pretty highly specialized functions, it makes sense why you would be pulling from a lot of different schools because it is a relatively um, niche service. Now, have you, how long has TCD been around? It's been around since the mid 70s. So oh, wow. we're creeping up on, on uh, the 45th anniversary, I think is coming up. Hmm. And so it's uh, it's been around and it's one of the few career centers in Illinois, there's about 30 of them, um, that was actually built from the ground up specifically for, for career and technical education. A lot of other ones occupy spaces that were warehouse spaces and things like that that were left over or um, old schools that were unaccounted or that due to downsizing and, and things like that, that, you know, there's spaces that are open, but it wasn't quite designed that way. So when we give tours of our facility, especially to people who work within the, the CTE world or in education, they are astonished by the size of the labs that we have and um, the space that we can provide to students. They, I mean, they literally can build a two-story house within our construction lab. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that you don't see in, in any high school. Um, yeah. And it's literally something you see in the, the, the union schools and some of them can't even provide that type of space. Um, there's one in Elk Grove Village that's that has the space and, the, and does it's bigger and better than everything that we have, but it's the closest thing to it huh. that a high school can provide. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Now, does this does TCD and, and the programs that you offer? I mean, to me, it sounds like a lot of these things are are putting your students on a path that would be, um, in many cases, like an alternative to uh, going to that four year. Uh, college experience and that they are probably after high school going to continue um, in many cases, I'm sure some don't, but in many cases continue down the path that they've been learning it at TCD. I wonder, and I'm curious as to, to what the latest research is in, in this industry, um, but is this what the future looks like for more and more types of folks? I just feel like that four-year education is starting to lose some relevance in, in the broader context and more targeted things like this are, are only going to grow is, is that what you're seeing or is it am i reading in too much 
No, you're not reading in too much. It is becoming more and more of a trend. If you listen to um, Mike Rowe and a number of different celebrities out there, they're jumping on this bus for a number of different reasons. I mean, if you look at all the data from the federal government as far as jobs and what's required to do them, only about 20 to 25 percent of uh, all the jobs in the, the current labor force really do require a four-year degree. Yeah. Um, the chunk that gets the kids and anybody into the middle class is really requiring more of like a two-year degree or um, certificate programs and things like that. And that's where um, our programs kind of start. So we get the kids started on finding ways to get those credentials of labor market value and and um, they have choices then at that point to where they can move to um, the community college or into a trade school or some of them are even actually ready to work the minute that they leave our programs if they've completed the whole thing mm. and there are a lot of parents and people who are uh, you know in their later the, the midpoint of their careers where they're sitting there looking at what they've done in the past and they're, they're looking at that labor force now and saying um, for their kids because of the cost of college now you know it's a hundred thousand dollar investment uh, minimum it seems like now just for a bachelor's degree uh, yeah. depending on how you go about doing it and um, you know they're they're looking for other alternatives for their kids that are fiscally responsible and will help make them uh, get a better bang for their buck and we help with that we've got a number of programs where kids that, that cosmetology program those kids if they um, do a good job and they stay good academically within our programs, they can leave TCD with over 50 credit hours from uh, college to page. Mm -hmm. uh, and every one of our programs is tied to dual credit. Um, if they, if they stick it out for the two years, so they can get credit at a number of different colleges within the state. So they're already starting off their, their college academic career that way, or that it's a, um, a college course transcripted that they can go into any type of a job and say, I've already started my college path. Um, I'm looking to work and complete this. And, you know, this is, it shows a different level of commitment that way. Yeah. You know, and I just, I can't help but think like you and I are both, we had a lot of education in our lives, both have four-year degrees and advanced degrees, a lot of it in night school while we've been working. Um, and, and it was tied at that point to more of what our professions actually were. Like we knew what our life's work was about by the time we went to graduate degrees, which makes sense, but it can't right. like, I'll never forget that we went to college in the nineties and I'm never forget what, you know, spending four years, there was a good time and I learned a lot, but a couple things stuck with me. One is that, you know, I went to a liberal arts college that really wanted to create academics. Like they didn't think about getting to work. Like I, I, you get your degree and then it's about going to grad school or becoming more academically sound. I'm like, no, I need, I need a job now. Like it's time to get to work. And so that always bothered me. And I think, you know, some organizations, some universities out there are starting to realize, Hey, we have different molds here. We need to, to support or otherwise our model is not going uh, to continue to work. But then there's also a part of me that if I somehow, which I don't know if it's possible, but if I, knew what I wanted to do was data leadership back in the 90s. And I had a good mentor and I had a good opportunity to work really hard. I have to imagine I would probably be better after four years of doing that and be more well-rounded, targeted towards that particular thing than a wide array of experiences that I got in a liberal arts school. Now, maybe those have helped me in a lot of ways to navigate my career, and, and I won't discount that, but I have to raise the flag and say, how many people are coming out with $100,000 debts 
after four years and have no ability to capitalize on that in a productive way in their careers. And that to me is a travesty. Right. And, and, and there's two different ways to look at it. The, the education system in, in America, and it's for the most part, has been something that has been founded on the Committee of Ten's work that they did in the 1800s. Mm. Um, and, and it hasn't changed much. And the um, higher education is the slowest moving of that, that aspect of it. There is a lot of requirements that we put on college students to take different classes to make them well-rounded. And yes, there's yeah. a lot to be um, great about being well-rounded, but there's a lot of courses that I took in college and that a lot of people I know took in college that were complete waste of time and didn't help them with anything. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where if you look at the companies now that are and different programs and people who are coming up with certification programs uh, and stuff like that to where if you piggyback that with uh, the certificate programs like you can get in business where they'll give you a good foundation for what businesses are and how they work. And then you, you can take different certifications or different classes that are talking about different programming skills uh, within the business world to where you can get into um, those niches and, and know how they work. And it's great. Like I know um, one of the educational consultants I've worked with, I mean, her son went out and got a, a bachelor's degree from MIT. And then when he got done, she's getting ready for him. She's like, have you even started interviewing? Where have you put stuff out? And he's like, no, no, I've got to take this six week data course at this place in New York to get into what I really, really want to be able to do. And so he, after he gets done at MIT, goes down and rents a place in New York City to really learn how to crunch numbers and do a lot of things. And I don't even remember what it was called, Mm -hmm. but you know, he gets done with that. And then all of a sudden he's got people knocking on his door and he, he's got, uh, he's commanding a hundred plus thousand dollars salary straight out of college that is notable. And he's got this certificate that it actually is what value, you know, the employers are really seeking and it's interesting that way. Yeah. Well, it, I like that because it, it shows somebody who has a plan, right? They, they are like, I know what I want and I'm going to go do this. And these are the steps I need to go do this thing. That's when it mm-hmm. works. You know, I think that one of the challenges uh, that we have a lot of the time is that people will think and talk and have a new plan without really thinking it all the way through. And and I talk in, in the data leadership world, I talk a lot about talking about working versus actually working. You know, we can have mm-hmm. a meeting and talk about data and make nothing happen. Like, like nothing comes out of that meeting. We talk about it. We had a really good dialogue and then we can record some stuff that nobody ever looks at. Like that, it just doesn't make any sense. But if we can start to put to use and and start to say, you know what, I know I think I might want to head in that direction over there. Instead of planning out every step I'm about to take to get to that place over there, I might be better off taking a step in that direction and and mm-hmm. recalibrating on the fly. And so I think that there's, there's kind of a, a recalibration aspect that needs to happen to make education more pragmatic, which is what you do in your program. Like you are very targeted to people with plans, people that say, I like this thing. I want to learn about it so I can do it. One of the things that we're talking in this conversation a lot about the educational side. So, so treating it from how do we create people that can do certain things? I think the other thing that we really want to be thoughtful on, and a lot of the people listening to this podcast will be on the employer side and the business side where we need to say, do you really need that four-year degree to do this coding job or to do this 
XYZ the job entry. in a business. Yeah. yeah. It's it you have an entry level job for somebody who has maybe some smarts and has some well-rounded skills that they got at that four-year degree, but do you really need that? Like maybe if they come in and work hard, they'll learn a lot of what they need to do. So don't put that artificial barrier in the way for somebody who if you get that right person who has that plan of like, I'm gonna go learn this stuff and I'll show you how I can do it. That to me is what I care about. And and I don't necessarily need the kind of signaling that I might have needed 100 years ago because now I have ways to validate if a person can do the things that they say. And I can, and right. I can judge them on that. And, and part of what we do is we have to have these advisory boards for our programs. Um, we're, so we're working with companies and trying to find out what their needs are and how they want things. And it's funny because like, when, when we went through college and the, you know, the way that the career fields worked is you went to this company and you worked there for two to five years and then you went for a new position either at that company or most likely you went for new positions at other companies. And companies now, the feedback we're getting, especially within the manufacturing world, is that they want to get people that want to work for them and then they will invest their time in training them there or sending a, or pay for their education to further them there. Um, they want to get back to the, um, the, era that our parents went through where it wasn't un, you know unfathomable for somebody to spend their entire career at a company as long as they you know they want to invest in that person and develop them and keep them there longevity at a company is now becoming more valuable that way and the mm -hmm. companies now want to make sure that they can you know mentor and and help that person on that path as opposed to just you know dumping somebody after two to five years and then having somebody in that they invest a lot of money in an employee regardless uh, right off the bat and they want to keep their investments there and make sure that they can have more going on. There. Yeah. You know, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for people that have been at one company for a long time in their career that have, you know, a decade or two type of, of employment. Um, you know, I think part of that is, is just the fact that people have been treated as, expendable and and that that employment at will transactional relationship has been kind of one way a lot of the time employees are expected to work on the weekends or they're expected to do what they need to to, to fulfill the role of the job and as soon as it's inconvenient the company lets them go or the as soon as they find a better alternative the employee doesn't have loyalty to the company because the company hasn't had loyalty to them so it's a it's a relationship that i guess has has degraded on both sides of that equation and that to mm -hmm. make it so that those long-term investments have real returns it comes back to making sure that that equation stays balanced and nurtured and reinforced over time where the company is investing in the people, the people are loyal to the company and that they grow together to create the most value possible with, with people that are hard to replace. Like you work somewhere for 20 years, you know, some stuff. Right. And the, the people, it was interesting to watch the, the recession from 2008 in that area where you're seeing a lot of you know, the people that companies ended up sticking with, a large amount of the, the higher priced people they wanted to get rid of, but there was the companies that did the best during that time were the ones that stuck with their long-term people and the, the people that they've invested in mm -hmm. uh, because they give that much back to the, the company and they, they, they didn't want to see that company fail. So they worked hard to make sure that that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, and and obviously we're we're seeing that kind of pattern emerge again. We're we're currently recording this at a time where we've just now had two or three weeks of truly record 
jobless claims and unemployment is starting to not just creep back up, but rocket back up as part of the COVID-19 crisis. So one of the areas uh, that I want to talk to you about more is this whole notion of, you know, many families right now, many professionals are, are now working from home haven't expected to, maybe weren't well prepared to, and have the added burden of trying to help facilitate their children's e-learning experiences and, you know, trying to stay sane throughout the whole experience as well. Um, you have a lot of experience on e-learning and, you know, setting this kind of up, this this platform up for your school. Um, can you tell us about what that's like, what some of the challenges have been, and, you know, what you're learning through that experience that might be helpful for either professionals that are working from home and what they're doing in their personal or in their professional lives and advice for parents that are helping their students on the other side of that e-learning equation. Well, this whole experience has been eye-opening in a number of different ways. It's always been, so I've always tried to be uh, on that bleeding edge of technology. When I first started teaching, I had access to a number of different computer tech teaching tools that nobody else did in schools because of how we were funded uh, with making sure that our kids had it. And so I would look at different ways to try to teach kids and engage them because I wanted to make sure that I was meeting them where they were because a lot of my, you know, the students that we we're working with are growing up in a different world. Mm -hmm. um, they're called the screen age generation and things <laughs> like that. And, and uh, you want to make sure that you're going to try to do, doing things and teaching things the way that we were taught isn't going to be as effective for them as opposed to using technology and different uh, components that the kids are growing up with. You know, they're the, the YouTube generation. So, yeah. you know, it's funny. They're just fascinated by the fact that you've got to stuff up on YouTube. It's crazy. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, so like um, I didn't do this when I was teaching, but when I, when I was teaching, I used different online platforms like Moodle and we, sometimes I would have access to something like Blackboard. And it was fascinating to see the difference in test scores among students where it's the exact same test, the exact same questions. It's all multiple choice. And you test two classes with the pencil and paper and you test other classes and you let them do it on the online platform or the learning management system. And the difference was so significant with the kids that were just taking a test on a computer, like their head was in a different position. They were, you know, clicking and as opposed to, you know, reading that sheet of paper and writing. And it, it's just fascinating that that was something that mattered to them and, and had a difference as far as them demonstrating what they knew. So did they so, do better? Did the computer students do better than the paper students or did the paper students do better than the computer students? The kids taking the exact same test scored significantly better, like 10% better. Um, and this was a study I did during one of my master's degree programs than the ones that took the pencil and paper. So huh. the ones that were doing the online testing it, it, and they had no, there was no reason that they should have. In fact, I, you know, I tried to set it, looked at the grades for my kids in the class and, and you know, had one class that was had kids that were scoring worse before I did this. And then they did better. It was, it was crazy wow. that, you know, technology did that. So, you know, coming through college, I took a class online. I took one. I've got an entire master's degree that I did online um, that was in the early part of 2000. So I become hooked into the, the, the tech side of learning um, as a graduate student and as a student and tried to apply those towards teaching. Mm -hmm. um, since then, I, I, you know, I've taught graduate classes uh, on flipped and blended learning and, and online learning. And I'm very familiar with the content building and facilitating a classroom. But what this whole COVID thing has done is um, I never, you know, 
education has been flipped and uh, it, the reference now is we've been Apollo 13. We've had to totally redesign everything that we needed to do in education to educate kids. And um, in a way that we've never done. And I would say the overwhelming majority of teachers aren't prepared for. Yeah. Um, but they, they are quickly tapping into resources and finding ways to develop content for kids across all ages and learning spectrums. And it, it's a struggle. And the educators across the country have done a monumental job in trying to do the best they can and providing the best they can with what they have right now. Um, but being a parent of a kindergartner and a third grader and seeing that perspective, uh, you know, like everybody thinks initially, well, the parents are going to be at home, so they're going to help. And, you know, it shouldn't be too hard, but there's a lot of different burdens that are going on. Yes, parents are home like me. I'm, I mean, I'm running a school from home most days of the week. There are days when I go in to do a number of different things, but um, my ability to help my children learn is, is not what uh, I anticipated it being. I don't have the free time and, you know, things that are as simple as homework deadlines and things like that are different considerations that everybody has to consider. Yeah. Then there's the teachers who are developing all this stuff at home who have their kids there. So like the whole workday is, is just completely different from that standpoint. And then it's a matter of what can, um, what are the recommendations and what is the research saying as far as delivering that content by age group and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a lot of different considerations that way that teachers in a, you know, a brick and mortar building, you know, the kids are there for six hours a day. I deliver my, you know, my math for 30 minutes, my language arts for 60 minutes this day. And um, it's different. And it, it's, it's hard on families for a number of different reasons. Like both my wife and I are working from home and um, we both have devices that our work have given us. And we're fortunate that way that, you know, our kids can use our devices. There are other people that we know that have two, three, four or five kids and they've got one computer in the house and trying to balance the online learning for their kids that are at various levels of education and they all need a computer of some type or device. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of families that way that now schools are looking at trying to revisit, you know, you've got computers on wheel carts or they call them cow carts. And so now they're, they're trying to reformat and get a lot of different, um, security aspects taken down and unloading things so that they can be handed out to those kids and used that way. Um, then there's always the socioeconomic issues that you're dealing with where, um, you know, there's been a number of different research articles out there about the, the amazing amount of access that people have to the internet, but it's not that they have them through laptops. It's the, you know, the poorest kids that we have out there have access through their parents or their own phones. Yeah. And, you know, is that really the right device for somebody to be typing a 10 page research paper and, and, or even conducting the research on it. Um, I can remember going through graduate programs where like I had my personal laptop, I would have had my work laptop and depending on whatever devices I had, I may have had three or four screens in front of me where I'm looking at different um, bits of research and, and synthesizing that on, on one of the, the devices that's open and kids uh, from different socioeconomic levels, some have it, some don't. And it's just a matter of uh, trying to make, get the access for everybody so that we can try to balance that. Yeah. 
Well, it's and it's not like we had months or years to plan for the current situation. Things happen very, very quickly, and people are scrambling to do the best they can. The thing that I keep thinking about, um, and I'm curious from your perspective on on the education side, is that you know you talk about the socioeconomic um, disparities and like you know a family with one computer is disadvantaged compared to a family that has you know half a dozen computers. I'm just looking around my desk right now. I'm like, I have two laptops, a desktop, an iPad, and a phone within three feet of me right now. And I use all of them throughout the day. That's probably a little (laughs) overkill. And I'll admit I have a problem. But when I think about the biggest thing is like for a lot of kids, school is the safest, most controlled, best part of their entire day. It's where they get food regularly. It's where they have good adult supervision. It's where they learn the right kinds of behaviors. I imagine that the longer this kind of mandated remote learning goes, the the mm-hmm. bigger the divide between those haves and have-nots, the people that have stable households with computing access and internet access and good devices and all of that, and those folks that you know really use school as a bit of a refuge. And 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 that scares and terrifies me for the the lack of you know there's just not a good way as far as I can tell to overcome that at least in the short term hopefully in the medium to longer term there's there's abilities to get them the help that they'll need but right now it's got to be really really tough on those kids well and and I'd like to see the the jobs reports and the data from the previous recessions and compared to what we're going through right now because mm-hmm. I think different types of jobs have been hit really hard here yeah um the food service industry has been hit the you know uh, there's so many different businesses small businesses um that are affected this time around that i think that um in 2000 between 2007 and 2010 i think that corporate america took a bigger hit than um those small businesses did or -hmm. or, or those niche companies and, and things like that right now like i mean i know people who um their spouses are out of work because they work at a restaurant and, you know, they had to downsize staff significantly. And these were decisions that were made three weeks ago before there was any type of stimulus that was coming out uh, and, and, and that type of thing. And then, you know, where the service industry didn't take nearly the same level of a hit back, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those were people that didn't, depending on like that, that level of, the socioeconomic spectrum, I think that, you know, we, we're going to see different effects because there's a lot of uh, fear of the unknown that's going on right now. Uh, and the economic downturn now is due to a health issue as opposed to um, a financial crisis that was caused within various institutions and, and stock markets and things like that. Yeah. Mortgage-backed securities didn't hit the waitresses the way coronavirus has like it, it it's, right. there was a bit of a divide between you know the the finance side of the world and and you know the debts and, and some big problems for big businesses and something that immediately without warning very quickly disrupted everybody's lives entirely mm-hmm. like and and you know the lucky ones are the ones that aren't sick but are still in dire straits financially like that's you know you're happy about that a lot of the time and that's just it it we're it's still i think i think we're all still in a bit of shock. Like this all happened. Maybe we're now starting to get used to waking up on Monday and going to that part of our house where we do our work for those of us that still have jobs and doing that versus, 
you know, the the just shock of of wait, we can't leave our houses anymore, and and you know, we don't know, you know, if we're gonna get sick or or you know, just waiting to see if if that cough turns into something really worse. Like it's there's a lot of you know you know of fear, reasonable fear out there right now that. I think, you know, we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't think that that our kids and the people that are supposed to be thinking all about their future are all of a sudden getting hit with a dose of reality that um, none of us were, were really thinking about or preparing them for. Right. And it, it, it's it's crazy. The, the You go back to it's a lot of that fear of the unknown or and then the variables that we had to consider 10 years ago are so much different now where you're talking about the family structures and who's living where and you know i know that we have students at my school where there's 10 people that live in our house that going all the way from infants to grandparents and so there's those fears that we and really i worry most about making sure that the um social emotional state of everybody that we serve i'm talking about everybody in each one of those kids houses Mm -hmm. uh it is really in a place where it needs to be and like i'm Starting, I've got friends that work in law enforcement, and their, their calls are different now. The, yeah. the the domestic issues that they're dealing with are are so much different compared to what it had been for the previous eight to ten years, as far as um, where the problems, the the underlying symptoms of the problems, and how they're coming about. The the stresses families are on. I can tell you right now that the just trying to figure this out within my family and as stable as we are. Um, with educating our kids and, you know, running a school. And my wife is works at a school too and working with her role at that school. And then the everything, it, it, keeping them confined and, you know, working within the stay-at-home aspects that the state has passed on us. It, it's just such a different animal and trying to make sure that everybody is trying to be mentally balanced and make sure that their state of mind is in a good place. Um, it's really a, a primary, it's my biggest concern is just making sure that the, the mental welfare of the, the students that my school serves and, and uh, my family and their families and, you know, even my te- like my teachers, like mm-hmm. they, they're, they're great people. They're great teachers at what they did, but they teach a hands-on content for the most part. Yeah. And now they're trying, and, and the timing of this is so bad because we're in a part of the year where everything they're doing is on the hands-on in the application side of it. And they need to be there and coach the kids through it. And like, we can't send welders home with kids. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> you know, probably a bad idea from you know, everything I remember CNC about high school. Machines. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's one of those things that needs to happen under the supervision of a professional. So That's now right. what do we do with these kids? And those, those teachers are sitting there racking their brains at home, um, trying to come up with something that will either maintain the kids, uh, level knowledge level of where they're at uh so that they can still use it again later on when they get that chance or they're they're trying to get that content to them and um it's a different level of stress for the teachers that i the all teachers period but the teachers i work with specifically because they it's so hands-on and it's so out of the the realm of nature just watching um you know, a lot of them don't work with computers as a primary instructional tool. And so now they've got to build content, put it up onto the learning management system, which we, we've come up with issues now with connecting with our kids because we're the, like we're not the primary school that the kids work with. And so we've got to get 
our stuff to kids through a learning management system. And we were using it one that's similar to all the other schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's massive technological issues, especially if it's a school that's one-to-one to where their devices are locked down and they can only use certain specific things or certain logins. And our kids all have different logins and combating all of that. And uh, along with making sure that our teachers are, you know, who are working so hard to get this stuff to them. And, you know, the certain classes are, it, it's fine because they've been kind of using that type of a uh, uh, platform as a conduit to get their information to their student throughout the year uh to the ones that now like they developed an online classroom on march 16th Mm. and so we've discovered a number of issues and we're we're in the process of building a different platform for them to use that will hopefully break down a lot of these technological barriers that um nobody really even knew about until (laughs) march 18th so yeah. it's 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 been an interesting battle, but like making sure that the social emotional health of everybody involved has just been something that's been on my mind since this all started. Yeah, well, and, and you know, it makes it, it. I think your your head and heart are in the right place. Like it, it gives me comfort to hear you say. Like to me, it's it's like two you know say two months of learning at a slower pace we maybe it's even 20 percent as effective as as what they would normally get like a small amount that can be overcome we can we can mm-hmm. you know they can figure out a way to backfill some of that knowledge over the course of their lives and careers um but if they lose it entirely mentally during this state and and you know things spin out of control and people really um you know, aren't able to continue forward in a productive way, then that's, you know, that's the thing that's, that's the scariest, like that, like the being able to help people through this time and for us to all just hold on and make mm-hmm. it through, that's the thing that matters. We can, we can rebuild it all once we come out of the crisis mode, but this is a crisis unlike anything any of us have ever been through. It is, it yeah, is I mean, really, really and- weird. And K through 12 teachers are trained to teach, to work with kids within their building. And you talked about things and the, the safety and the consistency of that. That's been so thrown out the window. Like when you've got a parent who's working from home and now you've got siblings taking care of siblings and doing all sorts of other things um, that that parent might be doing during their time when they're home from work, but now they're at home working and, and that balance is just destroying a lot of different things in people's heads and you know just that's it's a it's a lot of stress yeah um that nobody's ever predicted or thought about and you know it's being hit it's hitting everybody involved and it's just trying we got to make sure that everybody's still doing things you know even sitting on your back porch on a nice day is something seeing the sun having that that aspect of your life it it does monumental uh things for your your mental well-being Mm -hmm trying to get that to happen in a state of it's not necessarily lockdown, but you know, we're encouraged to not leave our house. Yeah. And, and taking solace wherever you can in those little moments and, you know, trying to find, you know, just some sanity and hope for the next day and, and to just put one foot in front of the other, um, you know, as, as we continue going forward, the, you know, we will get back to a normal. It may look a little bit different than the normal we were used to, at least for a while, um, but we will get there. And, and you know, I think it's a testament to to folks like you and, and the teachers and educators and, and the people that are, are doing the best they can, given the bad circumstances, makes it 
better for everybody. So I really appreciate that. Um, we probably should uh, call it a show and, and wrap it up. Jason, do you have any other uh, words of wisdom or any other thoughts before we, before we wrap things up? It, it's just, you know, this whole coronavirus situation and what it's done for the world of education is, is um, it, it's crazy. And, and we're, everybody's working really hard. And it's funny because um there's teachers trying things that they've never done before and administrators doing things that they've never done before counselors, everybody that works at a school teaching assistants. Um, I truly believe that while we're, we're working on a, we're building a plane as we're flying it right now, because it, it's all new, different, and new. Um, I think it'll end up having a profound change on education. And, and uh, I think it'll be a good one. Uh, it's just going to take time for, for that to see its impacts. And it's going to help us as far as preparing and looking at what we did and seeing what we need to do for this in preparation for um, the instruction that we give kids when they get back and preparing for the, the next wave if it comes uh, to where if we have to do this again, we'll be we'll have a different mindset and a different way that we can move about it. So it, it, it's scary and exciting all at the same time. Uh, it's been fun to be part of. Um, and it, it's going to be interesting to watch how everything how the dust settles from this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that some really good points and, and, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, you know, share your wisdom, share some thoughts with our audience. I think, you know, you've got a lot going on and, and a lot of responsibility, but I'm sure that some of the things that we talked about today uh, will make a real big difference for folks and, and you know, will give them that much more confidence that, you know, what's happening with their schools, you know, there's some smart people doing some really important things to, to help everybody. So, Jason, thank you again for for being here. And, and I really appreciate um, you, you doing this for uh, data leadership lessons and, and for the folks that are watching or listening. No problem. Um, Anytime. And, and, you know, maybe next time we can delve a little bit deeper into the, the data aspect of what we look at and analyze within education, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll have you back again for sure. <laughs> for sure. So, and thank you all for watching or listening today. Uh, please remember to follow, subscribe, like, rate, and leave a review of our show on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find information about supporting the show directly and how to get a signed copy of my data leadership book at patreon.com forward slash data leadership lessons. Visit algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.